We continue today in part four of my sermon series for the summer, Let Freedom Ring. We've been listening to a variety of voices this month. We started with George Washington and then Abraham Lincoln. Last week, of course, was the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., whose voice still continues to carry across this land. Today, we're going to listen to a contemporary poet, Maya Angelou, who would have celebrated her 90th birthday this month if she were still, still alive. Her words speak to us today in a way that I think will ring true. Many things continue to amaze me, even well into my sixth decade. I'm startled or taken aback when people walk up to me and tell me they are Christians. My first response is the question, already? It seems to me a lifelong endeavor to live the life of a Christian. I believe that is also true for the Buddhist, for the Muslim, for the Jainist, for the Jew, for the Taoist who try to live their beliefs. The idyllic condition cannot be arrived at and held onto eternally. It is in the search itself that one finds the ecstasy. May her words guide us on, on this day. Several years ago, Julie and I moved to Tennessee where I was going to be attending seminary. When the call to ministry came, we looked at three different schools, two of them in California. I was accepted into all three, and without getting too much into the details of why, we decided that we wanted to go to, to Tennessee to study together there. It was a bit of a frightening experience, I must admit. We had everything, we'd packed everything into our little tiny Toyota Tercel car. It was a, it was a, that's it, it was a Toyota Tercel. Not much bigger than this pulpit, really. And we drove all the way across to Tennessee, and honestly, we had a real hard time not only understanding the way people spoke, but the culture and the differences and a variety of different things. And I, I don't mean that in any kind of a demeaning way at all. It was just so different for the two of us. A couple of kids from the West Coast moved out to the mountains of, of Tennessee. Johnson City, Tennessee is where, where we were. In fact, I remember coming home one day after a couple of weeks of school, and I was getting into school and doing well, but I found Julie sitting, sitting in our living room on the floor. We did not have any furniture yet. And she was weeping, wondering, why did we come here? What's this about? What's going on here? And then three years later, when we accepted a call to go back to the West Coast, back to California, we cried tears of joy again, tears of, of, of sorrow for leaving behind all these wonderful new friends we'd made, all the people that, that we'd gotten to know. And, and we kind of actually decided that in that moment that, that we'd be willing to go anywhere, to let our journey of faith, as it were, our journey of ministry, guide us wherever the Spirit called. And we even sat down and made a list of all the places in the United States where we thought might be fun to live, and just in case we got a call from, from a place like that. And, and, and as I said, we went back to California, but then when we were in California, after seven years, a call came to go east again, to the south again, to, to Atlanta, to a church there, very much like this one, smaller congregation, a middle-sized church, only about 600 members but a wonderful one, very much like First Community in terms of their theology and their, their faith and their understanding of God and the fact that they're not afraid of truth no matter where that truth may come from. That church was founded in 1960 by a woman, by a woman pastor. I'm not, I can't say this for sure, but I would guess that I can count on one hand uh, the number of churches founded by women in, in Georgia. It was quite an extraordinary place, really, for where it was located. It was, and it just kind of confirmed this, this idea that we had of, our, of being willing to go wherever God calls and wherever the Spirit leads and to take it on. Well, uh, it was in that church that I first read Maya Angelou's book, Wouldn't Take Nothing for My Journey Now. And I was struck not only by the word journey in the title, but the passage that we, we read earlier. I'm startled or taken aback, she wrote, 
when people walk up to me and tell me they're Christians, my first response is, is the question, already? That really fit that church and it really fit my emerging and understanding of theology and of God and, and how, how life works. You can hear something similar here at First Community Church. If you get into our history and you read about what was said about this congregation a hundred years ago or so. In fact, a guest pastor once said, you are the church of the infinite quest. I really think that's a great description of us. And that's really, it resonates with what Maya Angelou was saying to us this morning. That we are indeed on a journey together, a journey of faith, moving forward, not with all the answers, but certainly willing to ask any of the questions. Well, I had all of this rumbling around in my mind after being in Atlanta a few months when I was in an airport waiting for a flight out to the West Coast for some event that I was participating in, when this very earnest young man came up to me, casually but neatly dressed, polo shirt, pair of jeans. He said, do you love the Lord? I said, I'm trying, but I don't always quite uh, come through with that. And he said, well, I can tell you how. It's really not easy. You want me to tell you how? It's really not that hard. You want me to tell you how? And I said, really? You can tell me how? You can, you can summarize how to do it in just a sh conversation here in the, in the airport? Because I've been wondering about a lot of things. For example, Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is quite confusing and difficult to understand. He says that blessed are the peacemakers and blessed are the meek. It's as though everything is turned upside down and, and awkward and strange. He also says that we're supposed to love our enemies. Now, does that mean the Nazis? Does that mean terrorists? Does that mean murderers and killers? What exactly does that mean if we're going to love our enemies? I don't know how to do that exactly. I can, I can barely love my neighbor and my family, let alone my enemies. And then there's a teaching, I, said, I just kept going on. I said, there's a, there's a teaching in the, in, that where Jesus says, if you have two coats, give one of them away to somebody who doesn't have a coat. I have five coats. One of them is for winter and one for rain and one for skiing and a couple I just bought them because I like the way they look. Am I committing a sin by having five coats? And, and there's more, and he interrupted and he said, God bless you, please. <laughs> and he practically sprinted out of that airport. Now, I'll confess, I'll confess, I was being a little bit snarky and, and a little bit rude, but the point that I was making, not nearly as poetically as my Angelou, was similar. It's, it's about the journey with Jesus. It's not about becoming a Christian and saying, now I have achieved this, I have become what God expected me to be. No, not at all. It's about moving forward in faith, even when we stumble and fall, even when we aren't sure about what to do next or where or how, we still look forward to following in the, in the light and life and teachings of Jesus. That's right there on your bulletin. You can read it at the beginning of our worship service, that we seek to follow in the teachings of Jesus. Not because we've got all the answers, not because we've written the proper theological statement to understand it all and make it perfect, no. But because we want to follow this one who invites us to live a life in the here and now that matters. Too often, though, in the church, especially in the United States, we've reduced our understanding of Christian faith into a how to get into heaven free card. To, to say, here's what, the, here's what you've got to do. If you do this and do this and think like this and believe this way, then you'll finally get into heaven. It's fascinating, though, to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John especially, and to read the teachings of Jesus and read the stories of Jesus and look at his life. He constantly talks about bringing heaven here today in the here and the now. We prayed it just a moment ago in the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done on earth where as it is in heaven. The implication by that prayer is that heaven will come down to us. Jesus says on more than one occasion, the kingdom of God has come near to you. That kingdom of heaven is now here and present among you. 
It's, it's amazing. What Jesus is talking more about than afterlife is this life and the way the heavenly realm can become a part of who we are even now. Now, I understand, though, and, and let me be clear. The question of what happens after we die is a vitally important one. I've been in hospitals and hospices, homes and, and hallways, when people have stopped me and said, please, please tell me, my father is dying, my wife is fading fast, what's next? Do you believe? And I, I always say, my trust is absolutely in the love of God, and that when this life is o'er, somehow, in some way, we'll be given a new life in, some, in, in, in the presence of eternity with the very Spirit of God. In, in moments where they're not quite that intense, I'll, I'll go on to say, you know, I can explain what heaven will be like as easily as a nine-month-old fetus still in the womb can describe what will happen after it's born. It, it's a mystery. It's impossible. There's, there's no words. There's no way to say exactly what it is. I simply base my belief on my trust and hope in God. And that's why I chose this, this reading for, for today. The reading from Romans is very clear that there is nothing, there is nothing in, the, in this life that will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There is no thing, neither life nor angels nor death nor anything to come nor powers present nor anything else in all creation, not even the fear of death can separate us. But the church has been guilty in the past of using fear as a way to drag people into church and as a way to control and overcome and, and, and to express power over, over their lives. There have been too many mean-spirited preachers, too many, too many angry Sunday school teachers, too many tormented deacons in the church, especially, again, in the United States. Paul is very clear. There's nothing that will separate us from the love of God. John Ortberg once said, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less. I quoted him so often in Kansas City, people credit me with having said that. I love that phrase. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more or less. God's love is already there. I saw this especially when my friend Mike joined that church in Atlanta when I was the pastor there. Mike, Mike got up to pray one night. Mike was, Mike was a good old boy. Mike was the kind of guy who, who loved who loved cold beer, <clears throat> fast cars, and football. And I'm pretty sure in that order, too. Mike got up to pray one night at this fellowship dinner, and, and Mike had a, a background from the, a more fundamental style of church, and so his theology kind of bled into his prayer a little bit, and it was, it was interesting to hear him. He got up and he said, Lord, tonight we just want to thank you. We just want to thank you for the blood of Jesus that covers all our sin. We just want to thank you for blessing us. We just want to thank you for all the many things that are here. And, and Lord, I want, to, I want to thank you and bless you for, for this church and the way they welcomed me in. They loved me. This proves that if they welcome me, they'll welcome anyone in. I was a little nervous about that prayer, and I looked around the crowd afterwards, and I saw that there were tears in people's eyes. Why were there tears? Because they knew Mike and his story. You see, Mike had been kicked out of his church a couple of years before. Mike and his wife ended up in a divorce. Their lives split apart. And the church he was in said that divorce is a sin. You can't be a member of this congregation. And you're out. You're gone. And frankly, he'd fallen into depression. He'd fallen into anxiety. He'd lost his job. All kinds of things fell apart. And when he needed the church to be there, they'd abandoned him. And more than that, they'd kicked him out. 
And one day he was lost while trying to find his way to a friend's house, used the church parking lot to turn around in, and something, he said, not a voice, but something compelled him to stop, park, go in and hear a word of welcome. It was, in fact, a few years later when that church encountered the, the issue of whether or not they would welcome into membership of the congregation those whose sexual orientation might be different. It was Mike who stood up and said, this church welcomed me. If those folks love each other and they're willing to be loved, then I say let's bring them all on in. Listen to the theology of what he said. It's simple, not simplistic. And it's true. This is why Maya Angelou is, is so right. There's no way any of us can say that we've already arrived. We've already gotten there. We've already proved ourselves. No, along with my friend Mike, all of us are on a journey of faith moving forward in belief and hope that God will love us and welcome us no matter what. Are you a Christian? The only answer for that question is, well, not yet, but I'm on my way. The great beauty of this is the freedom that it provides. The freedom to ask questions, the freedom to wonder out loud about this and that and the other thing, to argue with God if necessary, to express our doubts with each other, to find our way through the sometimes mysterious night, the night of doubt and worry and wonder. One time I was on an airplane trying to, trying to just catch a couple of mo moments of sleep when the young man next to me kept engaging me in a conversation. Finally, he said, well, tell me what it is you do. And I, I don't know about Nicole and Jim, but sometimes when I'm on a plane and somebody says, well, what do you do? I'm kind of hesitant to say, you know. I'd like to say, I'm a junior high basketball coach or something, you know. So I, I told him, I said, I'm a preacher. He said, oh, you're a preacher. Well, I'm an atheist. Oh, great, good. Now here we go. <laughs> but we actually had a marvelous conversation. I'll tell you the whole story some other time. But at the end, it was a long flight. At the end of the conversation, he said, you know, I'm almost compelled to visit your church someday. But tell me this, based on your faith, how would you tell me to live? I said, friend, the only thing I would say is love as if your life right now depended on it. He smiled and said, that's a pretty tough order. I said, that's all I've got to say. That's the essence of what Jesus came to say to us. It wasn't about perfecting our lives. It was about finding a life worth living in the here and the now. An invitation to a new way of being, seeing in the world. That is essentially what Jesus taught. In fact, the book of Romans, the letter, the letter to the church in Rome, is a fascinating text. There are some simple, clear messages within this rather dense and theologically difficult letter to understand. You could spend a month just on the first chapter digging into the words that are used there and what's going on and what's behind this philosophy and what's at work in the culture and, and all of that. But then Paul provides these little hooks along the way, these little anchors where we can stop and, and breathe in deeply and understand what he's saying. In chapter 5 he said, Christ died for us, Christ gave his life for us. While we were yet sinners, it's a word of grace. While we were yet stumbling and falling along the way, that's when this gift of grace was given to the world. Not when we became perfect. And then here in Romans 8, another word. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. No thing, not one thing at all. And then you skip on ahead and keep on reading again, more dense theology, but you get to chapter 13 towards the end of the letter. And there at the beginning of chapter 13 in verse 1, he says, we're to find civility in our practice as citizens in whatever government is over us. He, he describes society at its largest unit. And then eight verses later, he brings it down 
to the smallest unit in any society, that of neighbor. And he says the rule of love is the law that governs the way we treat our neighbor. It's fascinating the way Paul is able to help us understand that at, this, at the core of our faith and practice is the invitation to love neighbor. And the Bible asks that question all the, way, all the way from beginning to end. Who is my neighbor? And the essential answer is a double negative. There is no one who is not my neighbor. Any person you encounter in this world, in Jesus' understanding, in Moses' understanding, is a neighbor. You may have seen last week something that I posted on Facebook. It was also in my all-church email on Friday as, a, as an attachment. It was an essay based on Romans chapter 13. I, I wrote it because I was surprised by the Attorney General's use of, of chapter 13, verse 1, in defense of the action at the border where he said we're to, to submit to the, to the government. It was fascinating to me. I, I'm not a politician. I don't, I don't understand all the ins and outs. I read a ton. I read the Wall Street Journal and New York Times. I try to understand as best I can. I'm not a political commentator, but I am a theologian. I was surprised that he used that verse because maybe you know this. In the southern churches in the 1840s, 50s, and 60s, preachers used that text as a way of defending slavery. And I could point to other really tragic uses of that text to defend terrible actions by government and by, by church. A full reading of the text, as I just noted, declares that the rule of love is the final rule to follow. It goes from society at its largest at the government and implies basically, essentially, live with civility toward each other. Yes, that's a good thing. But then it comes down and he, he comes down and he concludes in verse 8 of chapter 13. It's the rule of love for neighbor that guides us in everything we say and do. The teaching is quite clear. And so in that essay, I quoted the former first lady, Laura Bush, she asks, in 2018, can we not, as a nation, find a kinder, more compassionate, and more moral answer to this crisis? I, for one, believe we can. The rule of love says that we can and we must. I am certain of this. The simplest teaching of the Bible invites us to treat our neighbor, whether they're from Columbus or Costa Rica, in the same way that we want to be treated. But here's the thing, though. What about today and tomorrow and next week and the week after that? It would be easy for me to allow my preaching and my ministry and our ministry shared together here as members and friends of this congregation to be completely dominated by the news cycle, to, to just react to every single thing that's going on constantly, and, and frankly, we would get nowhere. Instead, it's my, it's my job as a pastor of this congregation to invite us to pay attention in this angry and polarized culture to the simple truth of what Jesus taught, of what the Apostle Paul emphasized, that our lives begin as people of faith first with that action toward our neighbor, whoever he or she may be, no matter where he or she may be from. That's the place where Jesus invites us to live the life 
that matters. In fact, I, I read last week a, a theologian and a scholar I like a lot. Her name is Diana Butler Bass. She says that if any church is going to thrive in this new century, and she's talking about right now, it must reach back into its past traditions, into who it has always been, bringing the best forward in faith and reinventing it and understanding in light of the teachings of Jesus how it can continue to be in ministry with its neighbors across the street and around the world. She says this is, this is a reflective and risky path to follow. Our past will prepare us for our future as long as we are focused on the way of love. Finally, listen again to Maya Angelou. In another book she wrote, love recognizes no barriers. It jumps hurdles, leaps fences, penetrates walls to arrive at its destination, full of hope. The rule of love is the beginning and the end of the search itself.